Thank you for that very kind and generous introduction. As you can see by the program, I've entitled my remarks, Lincoln, A Full Measure of Greatness, but I, I don't want to miss this opportunity to talk a little bit about the Lincoln Bicentennial and Michigan's role in that, because as teachers, uh, if you're not familiar with some of the activities going on, I want to encourage you to become more familiar, because I think there are a lot of educational opportunities. To begin with, uh, Congress appointed a national uh, commission and uh, those commission members started formally on Lincoln's birthday in 2008 and our legislature decided that we were going to mirror the national uh, commemoration so it's a two-year celebration from February the 12th 2008 till February the 12th 2010 and our legislature passed a joint resolution Gleaves mentioned our committee, there are 14 of us, and when the National Commission kicked off the Bicentennial, every governor was asked to appoint somebody to represent that state, and I was pleased that Governor Granholm asked me to do that. One of the kind of humorous incidents about all of that is that some of the states were slow in appointing their uh, liaison or their lead to the National Commission. And if I were a teacher, I would ask you to guess which was the last one. South Carolina. South Carolina. You got it right. And that, that's kind of amusing, isn't it, that they were the first to leave the Union and the last to sign on on this celebration about Abraham Lincoln. Well, <clears throat> we have a number of partners, and no partner is greater than the Hollenstein Center for Presidential Studies. And... Uh, we so appreciate what they've done and one of the major things right out from the beginning with Brian's leadership is to establish a website milincoln.com and if you haven't looked at it there is a treasure trove of information that I think will help you one of the things that we did we did an inventory of all of the Lincoln um, material manuscripts artifacts and you're gonna find that inventory and you'll know where if you don't already know where those wonderful resources are. Uh, the Hauenstein Center also had a wonderful commemoration of the sesquicentennial of the Lincoln-Douglas debates and they brought in Professor Al, uh, Alan Gelzo from Gettysburg College and in my opinion has written the finest book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates and and I'm sure Brian and Gleaves agree with me that he is a phenomenal speaker. Uh, great historian and some historians can write and not speak so well but somebody like Gelzo or somebody like Bill Brands not only writes beautifully but speaks with equal eloquence. Uh, another thing that we did early on that I want to make sure you know about because you can access uh, the Department of Education uh, commissioned uh, a teacher, a middle school teacher to do an original play about Lincoln and Michigan and uh, that has been has, is completed and many many schools are uh, actually performing that play and you can learn also about that on our website. One of the exciting things we're doing is called the Lincoln Leadership Series. Uh, many many people believe that we can learn a great deal from the lessons of Abraham Lincoln, the greatest leader we've had, the greatest president we've had and the Fetzer Institute in Kalamazoo provided the funding and we kicked that off in September uh, with a keynote speech by Ronald White. 
and if you haven't been going to Barnes and Noble and looking at the new bookstores, Ron White has come out with a tremendous uh, biography that even people like James McPherson thinks it is the best single biography. I can't imagine that that you could write something today that would get that kind of acclaim. But then we're going to do three uh, roundtables on various leadership themes uh, to follow that up. The Plymouth Historical Society did a program as well recently, the Gerald Ford Presidential Museum. Well, what's coming up next that you can anticipate and take advantage of? Well, one of the things is you're going to want to be in Grand Rapids on February 18th because the Hauenstein Center is going to have a debate. And the debate is going to include two people, and, and I haven't read uh, Tom Cranowitter's book yet, Vindicating Lincoln. Uh, you can imagine what his position is going to be because there are lots of revisionist historians. He's a professor at Hillsdale, Hillsdale College, and he is going to square off uh, with a gentleman named Winston Elliott, who is with the Free Enterprise Institute, and they're going to be debating Lincoln's presidency and his legacy. Uh, I'm not going to be able to hear that because tomorrow I have the privilege of... of uh, of flying to Springfield and then I'm going to experience the warm weather in Arizona. Something else that's coming up that you'll want to watch for is our former, my former department, I have to be careful, uh, the Michigan Historical Center is a part of it and Michigan History Magazine is published by our department and they're going to publish an anthology of Lincoln stories and that'll be out in April. It's going to be a hardcover book and uh, we have lots of connection to Lincoln. Then we're going to very, very soon, and I hope you will participate uh, and, and encourage others to participate, we're working with the Michigan Commandery of the Military Order of the Loyal Legion and leadership here in Grand Rapids to sponsor an essay contest. And I brought along some flyers, but you can get more detail on this essay contest uh, on our website, but please pick up a copy uh, of this because I want to encourage uh, participation. Something else that you might want to uh, get a hold of, and that is to get a hold of the National Commission. Uh, every state was offered an opportunity to participate in this publication, A New Birth of Freedom, and I, I just got some copies and uh, if you haven't been on the national website, it is abrahamlincoln200.org, abrahamlincoln200.org, and I'll bet if you contacted them, they'd send you a copy of this marvelous publication. And each state gets a page, and here's ours on 109, about key things coming up and facts about our connection to Michigan. Now, I, I do have some copies, and I urge you to pick one up. Uh, this is a publication of the Organization of American Historians called Magazine on History, and it's all about Lincoln, and it's really aimed at teachers. The very first article is Teaching Lincoln's Legacy, and uh, there's a lot of, I, I haven't read it because I've just gotten it, but it's a beautiful publication. Those are, you can have a copy if you choose one. Uh, Hillsdale College is doing a brand new uh, sculpture on Abraham Lincoln and then finally I'll say that we are putting together what's going to be called a Remembrance Trail and we'll have that up and ready by April of this year. So if you take field trips 
uh, with students. It'll give you an opportunity to visit sites in Michigan that relate to Lincoln. And one might say, well, this isn't Indiana, this isn't Kentucky, this isn't Illinois, but we've got a lot in Michigan. Uh, starting with, of course, Greenfield Village and the chair that Lincoln was sitting in when he was assassinated, starting with the only Illinois courthouse that Lincoln practiced law in that's not in Illinois, the Logan County Courthouse, the original structure in the 8th Congressional District, uh, Grace Bedell's wonderful letter uh, telling Lincoln he'd look better if he grew whiskers is at the Detroit Public Library in the Burton Collection. It goes on and on. Uh, a marvelous sculpture in uh, in Muskegon, so we're going to link all those together. We're going to work with Travel Michigan, get it up on the website. So, all of that about Michigan's commemoration and, in part, the Nationals' commemoration. Now, back to Lincoln, a full measure of greatness. I don't think there's any question that historians agree that Lincoln's two greatest literary masterpieces were his second inaugural and the Gettysburg Address. But it's interesting to me that when Lincoln, in each case, was writing them, he revealed privately that he wasn't sure he could say anything new. And so, as a speaker today, talking about the 16th president, I have to reflect the same way. How can I say anything new? How can I say anything fresh? And I guess what I'm bringing then is my thoughts and my perspective, and probably nothing that is absolutely brand new. You know, ironically, all of us think we know something about Lincoln, and we do. But if uh, we were all to be interviewed when we stepped out in the hall, we would all say similar things. Because the stories about Lincoln, the most profound and the most uh, well-known, are ones that are captured and encapsulated in our memory. But you know, the real Lincoln, despite the fact that so much has been written, so much study and analysis <coughs> has been done, he still remains kind of elusive. And that sounds like a funny statement to make. But think about the titles of books that suggest that. A recent book called The Real Lincoln. Another book called Lincoln Revisited. Another book from the past, Miss After Lincoln. Another book called The Lincoln That Nobody Knows. Another book called Lincoln Reconsidered. All of that suggests that we are still trying to find and understand the real Lincoln. Well, I think one of the challenges of Abraham Lincoln is the vastness of the literature. It is absolutely huge. In 1945, a historian named Jay Monahan did a bibliography. 1945, he was able to catalog 3,958 titles. That's a lot about one person. Well, today, articles and books about Abraham Lincoln now number 16,000. And if you go on just Barnes & Noble's website, you will be able to find for sale about 2,500 titles about Abraham Lincoln. I believe that writing a biography, one of the greatest challenges is to be objective. When is the last time, there are a few exceptions, but when's the last time that you've read a good biography and in the summary at the end, the author concludes that his subject was a rascal 
a scoundrel, an unsavory person, and not worth remembering. Pretty darn rare. Well, I'm having my first opportunity to write biography, and this happens to be a baseball player, and I'm concerned with objectivity because I'm a co-author, and my co-author is the daughter of the Hall of Fame member. I think we're doing pretty well, but objectivity is a challenge, and it's a huge challenge with Abraham Lincoln because I believe that our judgments of Lincoln and perhaps about any person that we would write about are controlled in part by our emotions. Certainly it's fair to say that Lincoln is an American and almost a world icon. That his whole being is shrouded with affection and pride and reverence. And let me make a confession. The simple truth is that I have a hard time reading a book that's overly critical of Lincoln. And I'm trying to force myself to not be so biased and uh, to look at what historians are saying today. And so recently I tackled one of those. I, I sometimes put myself in a situation that I'm a graduate student and I actually each year make a reading list for myself and put things on the reading list that may be challenging and I hold my feet to the fire and say, Bill, this is what you're going to read this year, and then you can read other things after that. So, I picked up Michael Lynn's book <coughs> called What Lincoln Believed. And, you know, most of us that love to read like to read before we go to sleep. Is that some of you that way too? I, I read every night, and it's one of the ways that I uh, draw close to peace and uh, tranquility and it's just a wonderful feeling. I, I don't go anywhere without a book, and when I'm traveling, I read even more than that. Well, Michael Lynn's book is so acidic when it comes to Abraham Lincoln that I finally quit reading it before I went to bed. Because instead of making me feel restful and peaceful, it got me all stirred up. And I wanted to get to my computer and write him a letter and tell him what I thought. What it's almost like he was tampering with the flag. Well, Lincoln is the most revered person in our history, but we have to remind ourselves that as President of the United States, he did not enjoy that level of approbation. He was what historians called the unpopular Mr. Lincoln. Most of the newspapers were opposed to the wartime president, and I want to share some illustration. William Cullen Bryant of the New York Evening Post said, quote, I am so utterly disgusted with Lincoln's behavior that I cannot muster respectful terms in which to write to him. The New York Herald was especially abusive, calling Lincoln, quote, a joke incarnated. In another evaluative statement, the editor of the Herald, a famed writer James Bennett, wrote in 1864, quote, as President of the United States, he must have the sense enough to see and acknowledge that he is a remarkable failure. Many of the comments about Lincoln were truly belittling and personal. The British minister, Lord Lyons, claimed that the new president had not demonstrated, quote, any natural talents to compensate for his ignorance of everything but Illinois village politics, end of quote. And the London Times described the U.S. system of government, quote, as a cheap and simple form of government having a rural attorney for sovereign. Well, we know that Lincoln was not a beautiful person, not a handsome man, but boy, did those who didn't like him really take on his physical features. 
One of the oft-repeated stories that I want to tell again because I like it so much is the story goes that Lincoln was out walking in the woods and he came upon a really rough and rugged looking hunter and the hunter had a musket and he drew his musket and drew a bead on Lincoln and Lincoln said whoa what are you doing stranger and this man said well let me tell you man the settlement that I live in I've been told that if I ever meet another human being that's uglier than I am I should kill him and I have met him and Lincoln took a long pause and said well sir if I'm really uglier than you are go ahead and shoot because I don't want to live any longer <laughs> the Chicago Times you may remember was very very anti-war and took on Lincoln with great glee it wrote his gestures seem positively painful like those of a man suffering from an attack brought on by an imprudent indulgent in unripe fruit <laughs> I think that probably came after the Lincoln Douglas debates but in the perspective of time Lincoln has emerged bigger than life historians have repeatedly judged him the greatest president that we've ever had the first evaluation was done by Arthur Schlesinger senior in 1948 and Lincoln topped the list every single evaluation survey of presidential greatness has put Lincoln at the top of the list well how did they make those judgments probably the most important to be at the top of the list the president has to be involved in a turning point in history but they looked at things like strength integrity uh, commitment to principle uh, and obviously accomplishments and of course way up at the top of the list also is Franklin Delano Roosevelt turning point in history he had a terrible world war and a depression I always uh, smile when I think about what Teddy Roosevelt thought because he didn't rank way up at the top and he said yeah sure that darn Lincoln he had a war I didn't have one except that Spanish-American war which wasn't much of a war well the exceptional challenges that Lincoln faced the stage that he served on represents the opportunity for either greatness or failure and that's the basis of my remarks I want to look at Lincoln quickly from the standpoint of five major challenges that he had the first one the obvious one is the Fort Sumter crisis then we're going to talk about how Lincoln dealt with the major problem of keeping the border states in the Union then I want to talk about his cabinet which again was a huge challenge for him the fourth one that we'll, do, we'll share on this morning is the issue of emancipation and finally finding a general or a cadre of military leadership that could win the Civil War let's go quickly to Fort Sumter think about the fact that uh, you are inaugurated on the 4th of March 1861 and you are immediately faced with a major crisis think about the fact that as a president or think about any big job that you may have taken and there's normally a honeymoon I've been a college president twice it resulted from a national search they decided that I was the best person that wanted the job and there was a honeymoon where I couldn't do anything wrong everybody loved me and shook hands and smiled at me well Lincoln 
begins his presidency with no honeymoon at all. He doesn't have an opportunity to even settle in. You know, when we often say that a brand new legislature, legislator's first job is to find out where the restroom is. There are all kinds of things that are just routine. None of that time was available for Lincoln, and he faced a no-win situation. At the very beginning, then, of his administration, he was faced with a crisis in the Charleston Harbor, Har Harbor and a dilemma of unbelievable consequences. I believe it was the most taunting, the most vexing, the most tremendous decision that Lincoln had to face because on one hand there might be peace, partial peace, on the other hand there would be civil war. Lincoln could not avoid trouble with this crisis. He could simply choose between alternatives of trouble. And think about how his predecessor, James Buchanan, handled it. Obviously he was anxious to get out of Dodge. And he said in his December message to Congress, he knew that secession was illegal, but there was nothing he could do about it. He, actually, he truly ducked the situation. What were the complexities for Lincoln? Well, first off, the center of the secession controversy was Charleston. It's fair to say that Charleston at the time of the Civil War, with its emotion and its rabid uh, Confederate attitudes and states' rights attitude, was the most unstable psychological place in the country. It was an explosive atmosphere. It was a tinderbox. Normally when mediators come together and help out in a crisis, they often suggest that there be a cooling off period. Let's back off. Let's let cooler heads prevail. Let's think about this a little bit. That option was not available to Lincoln. It was a change of administration. Think about it. In the worst possible situation. You remember in 1832 when South Carolina uh, issued the nullification uh, edict and Andrew Jackson responded with force. He mobilized the military. Lincoln did not have an adequate military and if he had mobilized the forces that would have been viewed as provocation and that would have tipped the scales I believe for civil war. Well the Deep South those seven states that had already seceded and formed the Confederacy were not interested in any conciliation or any compromise. But remember, there were four critical states that had not left the Union, Arkansas and, and Tennessee and North Carolina and Virginia. They still held out hope. The die was not cast, and Lincoln thought maybe he had a chance to hold them. On March 15th, less than two days after his inauguration, or about two weeks after his inauguration, I should say, Lincoln put the question to the cabinet, and only his postmaster general, Montgomery Blair, agreed that Fort Sumter and Fort Pickens ought to be held. Every other member of his cabinet said, we ought to give them the forts and capitulate. What a test of presidential leadership. When your senior advisors all recommend basically one thing, and you take a stand, no, we're going to hold the forts because it's too big a concession. Well, Lincoln, I believe, responded in a way of great courage. He responded in a way that was basically peaceful and non-aggression. You remember he sent a re relief force that was only taking supplies. It was not an armed vessel, and he even informed the South Carolina governor that they were coming. Well, that did not work. On April the 12th, of course, 
the Confederates fired on Fort, Sum Fort Sumter, and on the 14th, Fort Sumter fell. Lincoln now faced even a greater crisis, Civil War. The second crisis and challenge to his leadership I want to talk about is saving the border states for the Union. The Kentucky situation certainly offered Abraham Lincoln with a grave challenge. I believe if the presidency hadn't been held by a man of the kind of understanding spirit, diplomacy and tact, and understanding of border state sentiment, Kentucky would have been lost. And if Kentucky would have been lost, then it would have meant that the Ohio River would have been the boundary between the two warring factions. Think about those states of Missouri, Kentucky, and Maryland. They basically provided a buffer between the two parts of the warring nation. And you take those away, and you move the Confederacy much closer to the Union. No one understood better than Lincoln what it meant to lose Kentucky. He said, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly to lose the whole game. Kentucky gone, we cannot hold Missouri, nor I think Maryland. These all against us, and the job on our hands is too large for us. We would as well consent to a separation at once, including the surrender of the capital, which is a convenient segue to Maryland. Think about the strategic location of Maryland, literally surrounding the U.S. Capitol and standing between the Confederacy and the North. And to, lead, to lose Maryland could also, I think, be a catastrophe for the Union cause. It is hard to imagine a victory losing Maryland. And then, Mar then Missouri. Missouri ought to be thought about as the most vexing and the most contentious of all of the border states and maybe the most of all states that fought in the Civil War. Great confusion, great turbulence, and Missouri had its own Civil War. If you haven't had an opportunity, look at Michael Fellman's book entitled Inside War. These three states, membership in the Union was very fractured, very tenuous, and very fragile, and Lincoln had to deal with them in a very delicate matter. He exercised great diplomacy and great tact, urged restraint among Union people, and he also responded, though, with strength when it was called for. Clearly, Missouri was held in the Union because of strong military strength, and in Maryland, the same thing could be true. The Lincoln administration watched very carefully the fall elections in 1861 to see what happened, and he took extreme measures. He arrested 19 members of the, of the Maryland legislature because he thought, his administration thought, that they were traitorous. And then when the mayor of Baltimore and the governor of Maryland said, we don't want any more Union troops to be moved through our state, Lincoln had to face another real important situation because they were concerned that after that mob had attacked the six Massachusetts, they didn't want more mob activity or more hostility. And Lincoln responded with unmistakable firmness, and I love his statement. He said, we must have troops, and they can neither crawl under Maryland nor fly over it. They must come across it. The third challenge that we want to talk about this morning is his cabinet. 
The cabinet should have been a body that would have supported and sustained Abraham Lincoln, but it never did. It was basically a tempest. It was a source of continuing aggravation for the President of the United States. Think about all of us in our work, and if you've ever been in an administrative position or ever been a part of a senior management team, there are characteristics of a good senior management team, and that is there is a relationship of mutual respect and trust. That was absolutely missing from Lincoln's cabinet. It was a collection of people who were jealous of each other, who didn't like each other, and didn't trust each other. It was a collection of men who were highly opinionated and strong-willed and were insisting that they have a very significant role in the decision-making process. Think about the Republican Party organized in 1854. It was bits and pieces of a lot of different things that came together. And that was all reflected in the cabinet because that's the kind of cabinet Lincoln had to say, had to put together if it was going to be representative of the party that was then in office. It represented all the discordant elements of the Republican Party. And we're talking about liberals and conservatives. We're talking about former Democrats and <coughs> former Whigs. We're talking about Northerners and Westerners and border state Southerners. Certainly as the war began and Lincoln's administration began, they did not really have confidence in Lincoln. Attorney General Edward Bates said, the president is an excellent man, but he lacks will and purpose, and I greatly fear he has not power to command. Or think about and be reminded of that famous statement by William Seward, the Secretary of State, the most important position in his cabinet, when he basically suggested that he would kind of take over the operation. In modern terms, something like a COO, the Chief Operating Officer, or as historians have sometimes used the phrase, kind of like he was going to be Prime Minister. And of course, Lincoln politely said, no thank you, I'll handle it just fine. Probably the worst challenge, or the most vexing challenge for Lincoln was the Secretary of Treasury, Solomon Chase. He was a man of a powerful ego, with overly confident, and somebody who was constantly posturing to be the Republican nominee in the 1864 election. His self-confidence was so strong that Lincoln's personal secretary, John Hay, recorded, he thinks there is a fourth person in the Trinity. <laughs> Solomon Chase actually precipitated a cabinet crisis for Lincoln. Late in 1862, Republican congressional leadership began insisting that Lincoln restructure the cabinet and first on their list get rid of William Seward because Seward they believed had way too much influence on Abraham Lincoln. So one day or one evening a committee of Republican leadership met with, the Lincoln, met with Lincoln and presented their demands. Lincoln as he was so skilled at listened carefully and after he got through listening said let's continue this conversation tomorrow night and he excused these leaders. And they felt pretty good about that beginning. But when they came back the next night, Lincoln had his entire cabinet present without William Seward. That presents a little different situation. In my life as a college president or as a dean or a vice president of instruction, 
I can't remember the number of times when somebody came in to complain about somebody else and they were just telling me that this person was intolerable and then when I brought that person together with the person who was intolerable there was no comparison to what I heard privately. They really had a tendency to sugarcoat when the person was sitting there. Well, what this meant, of course, is that Lincoln had quite an advantage because he was moderating that meeting. And it was one thing for these Republican leaders in caucus to chastise Lincoln's cabinet and particularly William Seward, but it was whole, an entirely different situation when there sat the cabinet and Abraham Lincoln. And Chase, of course, really had no choice but to basically support the fact that there was harmony within the Lincoln cabinet. Well, Lincoln then decided to tell a story. And actually, this Republican leadership was trying to get a, a complete turnover of the cabinet. And here's what Lincoln said. Gentlemen, your request for a change of the whole cabinet, because I have made one change, Simon Cameron had been let go and Edmund Stanton was the new Secretary of War. Gentlemen, your request for a change of the whole cabinet because I have made one change reminds me of a story I once heard in Illinois of a farmer who was having trouble with skunks. His wife insisted on his trying to get rid of them. He loaded his shotgun one moonlit night and waited for developments. After some time, the wife heard the shotgun go off and in a few minutes, the farmer entered the house. What luck have you had, asked she. He responded, I hid myself behind a woodpile, and before long there appeared not one skunk, but seven. I took aim and blamed, blazed away, killed one, and he raised such a fearful smell that I concluded it was best to let the other six go. <laughs> well, the upshot of the whole matter was that both Chase and Seward resigned, and Lincoln refused to accept them. And the upshot of the matter was that Lincoln had upstaged uh, Solomon Chase and had gotten the upper hand and put him down a notch. Well, you may remember that Mary Todd, his wife, was so remorseful, particularly after Willie died, that she began, they began having seances in the White House. And seances, of course, were something that people who were spiritualists believed in, that you could communicate with the dead. Uh, Mary Todd was kind of leaning that way. Lincoln uh, didn't believe that, but he actually attended some seances. And after going to one of these, he said that the seances reminded him of the cabinet meetings. The voice of the spirits, he said, were as contradictory as the vice of his secretaries. Next, let's talk about Oh, I, I think I want to do this before I go to emancipation. How many of you have read the book Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin? Okay, wonderful. I, I hope you agree with me that it's a fabulous book. I, uh, I don't think they've, Cleves have, or Brian, they haven't voted on the Pulitzer yet, have they? Yeah. I, I, I'm kind of betting that she's got a real chance to win the Pulitzer Prize for that book. You know, does a marvelous job of looking at Lincoln and, and those three people who ran against him for the presidency that he was in, we're in the cabinet with him. But in her introduction, she makes this statement that I, I want to read, for, particularly for those of you who have not read the book. This then is the story of Lincoln's political genius revealed through his extraordinary array of personal qualities that enabled him to form friendships 
with men who had previously opposed him to repair injured feelings that left untended might have escalated into permanent hostility to assume responsibility for the failures of subordinates to share credit with ease and to learn from mistakes. He possessed an acute understanding of the sources of power inherent in the presidency, an unparalleled ability to keep his governing coalition intact, a tough-minded appreciation of the need to protect his presidential prerogatives, and a masterful sense of timing. His success in dealing with the strong egos of the men in his cabinet suggests that in the hands of a truly great politician, those qualities we generally associate with decency and morality, kindness, sensitivity, compassion, honesty, and empathy, can also be impressive political resources. It's a wonderful statement if you want to understand and appreciate the leadership of Lincoln. Let's talk about emancipation. Clearly, emancipation was the toughest domestic and social issue that Lincoln faced. The emancipation of slaves was truly a revolutionary act. When I, uh, when I teach and talk with students, I often suggest that the Civil War was the second revolutionary war, not in the same sense that it either got or ensured independence, but when you think about revolutionary change, emancipation of slaves, the arming of free slaves or black people, and third, the first confiscation act in our history. Those all were represented major and huge changes for people in the country. This was an issue in which you began to understand Lincoln's ethical concept, and that is that he believed that the North ought to share the solution for the liberation of slaves. He believed that the North ought to share the blame for slavery. You began to really get a sense of Lincoln's caution in legal matters, his regard for property as protected by the fifth article, fifth amendment of the Constitution, and his recognition for the consent of the governed. In Lincoln's first inaugural address, he said, quote, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. Lincoln's position was no further extension of slavery. Lincoln believed in the fundamental concept of law. In other words, the federal authority was fixed by the Constitution and domestic institutions, i.e. slavery, belonged exclusively to the states. There was great pressure placed on Lincoln to emancipate slaves. Abolitionists and extremists tried to force his hand. The anti-slavery advocates saw none of the complexities that Lincoln saw. For them, it was simply a matter of right and wrong. Pressure came from people like Charles Sumner and Horace Greeley and the radicals. One of the most significant letters that people read and think about in, in understanding Lincoln's position on slavery came from Horace Greeley, the publisher of the New York Tribune. And this letter was published on, in August of 1862 in the National Intelligencer. Lincoln decided to write a response to the editor. Can you imagine the President of the United States or any president that we've known reading an editorial they didn't like and say, I think I'll write a letter to the editor like some of us might do. But 
that was the way that uh, communication took place and Lincoln made great use of what might be called a public letter. He wrote in part, my paramount objective in this struggle is to save the Union. It is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help save the Union. And most historians and many, many writers stop there in quoting Lincoln, and they do not include his next statement. I have here stated my purpose according to my view of official duty, and I intend no moderation of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Thus, what is so often missed in quoting this famous statement is Lincoln's perspective on slavery. One aspect of it being what he thought he could do constitutionally, legally, and what he wanted to do in terms of his own personal feelings. And there's no, it's, for some people, there's not much of a s distinction between the two. Lincoln said, I acknowledge your rights and my obligations under the Constitution in regard to your slaves, this 1855. Lincoln hated the institution of slavery. Lincoln said, quote, I have always thought that all men should be free, but if any should be slaves, it should be first those who desire it for others. And Lincoln recognized that slavery was a great contradiction to the principles of democracy and a free person. Clearly, Lincoln was trying to come up with some solution, and I'm going to be speaking later about the literature of Lincoln, and I'm going to deal with those historians that have really taken him on on the slavery issue. <clears throat> but Lincoln obviously was looking for some solution that a white racist majority made up of men could buy. And as you'll hear, if you come to my second presentation, I will tell you that Solomon Chase, who was much more abolitionist than Lincoln, William Seward, who was farther to the left than Lincoln was on the issue, could not have been elect elected President of the United States. And probably no uh, abolitionist president could have been elected for a hundred years. But that's not to excuse Lincoln, but it is to say that Lincoln was looking for some solution. So he starts out thinking about gradual emancipation. Because the nation was overwhelmingly racist, he's talking about colonization. He's talking about uh, compensation for the South if they will free the slaves. He starts out with a preliminary emancipation proclamation and says, I'll give you a hundred days to decide whether you're going to free the slaves and then I'm going to make it permanent. And he does with the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863. Then he moves farther along and he supports the 13th Amendment, which is a constitutional freeing of slaves. And before he died, he was beginning actually to start talk about civil rights, and that is that well-educated freedmen ought to be given the vote. Well, given the failure of all of these moderate approaches, and Lincoln had last met with representatives from Kentucky in July of 1862, he said, things have gone from bad to worse until I felt we had reached the end of our rope on the plan of operations we have been pursuing, that we had about played our last card and must change the tactics or lose the game. I now determined upon the adoption 
of the Emancipation Proclamation. The fifth challenge that I forecast a few moments ago is winning the war with the right combination of military leadership. If you've studied the military history of the Civil War, you know what a huge challenge Lincoln had finding a general who would fight, to, to make it really simple. The generals he brought into command position were guilty of playing all kinds of politics. They were guilty of ineptness and non-support. And that struggle of Lincoln trying to find a general has been captured well by an author named Kenneth P. Williams in, in a five-volume work called Lincoln Finds a General. And of course, that general was Ulysses S. Grant. Lincoln, more clearly than anyone, it seemed like for a long, long time, understood that the central military objective was to engage the enemy. And he wrote to Henry Halleck, who was chief of staff in September of 1863, with great firmness, to avoid misunderstanding, let me say that to attempt to fight the enemy slowly back into the entrenchments in Richmond, and then to capture him, is an idea I've been trying to repudiate for quite a year. My last attempt upon Richmond was to get McClellan when he was nearer than the enemy was to run in ahead of him. Since then, I have constantly desired the Army of the Potomac to make Lee's army and not Richmond its objective point. If our army cannot fall upon the enemy and hurt him where he is, it is plain to me it can, it can gain nothing by attempting to follow him over a succession of entrenched lines into a fortified city. Grant and Sherman would demonstrate the dogged determination that Lincoln so thought. He wrote to Grant and said, I have seen your dispatch expressing your unwillingness to break your hold where you are. Neither am I. Hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible. We know that early on Grant had his share of critics and Lincoln made that famous statement, I can't spare this man, he fights. I challenge you to read the dispatches and letters of Abraham Lincoln and you are going to get a lesson in leadership. You're, you're going to be uh, the person who gets to look over Lincoln's shoulder and understand a whole treasure trove of wise counsel, of shrewd subtleties, of candid and forthright challenges, of understanding and of an intimate understanding of the relationships that motivate people to act. Lincoln could be very direct and candid, but he knew how to temper his concerns when the situation called for restraint. Although terribly frustrated, Lincoln would tolerate all kinds of behavior, disturbing behavior, none greater than the night that he was waiting for McClellan, and McClellan went to bed, and his Secretary of War and John Hay were just furious and thought Lincoln ought to really spank him and Lincoln said I will hold McClellan's horse if he will only give me victories. We all know of course that uh, that uh, generals were constantly when they were upset offering to resign and and uh, Ambrose Burnside pulled that on Lincoln and Lincoln said when I wish to supersede you I'll let you know. Well, let me conclude by saying that when you look at Lincoln in total, we have many, many special bonds of endearment for this great American. 
He was a great example and for some of us I think almost a role model. He was a great commoner and that means he was one of us. He exemplified virtues that we all admire, that being courage, honesty, and humility. His simplicity, I believe, is also a bond because you never have trouble understanding what he wrote or what he said. Certainly the tragedy of his death stamps an imprint on our emotions. Lincoln was also an original. Yet most of all, I believe that Lincoln is a source of unending inspiration. When you and I are in situations in which we feel challenged and maybe stretched, I believe it is wonderful to think about and read what Lincoln said. I know very well that others might in this matter do better than I can, but I am here. I must do the best I can. I think it is encouraging and inspiring if we're writing a speech or preparing for a class and maybe we haven't had enough time and maybe it's a challenging subject that's more difficult than maybe some of our favorites to remember that Lincoln was still working on the Gettysburg Address the morning in which he presented it. I'm sure that people who are born into great families that have accomplished a lot must feel great pride. But how about the rest of us who come from humble stock, from pretty humble beginnings? And we look at a man who many people called came from poor white trash. And if somebody as great as Lincoln can rise up from poor white trash, then there's hope for Bill Anderson and other people who came from low beginnings. And think about the self-respect that Lincoln had, which is so important in building our confidence. He once said, I desire to so conduct the affairs of this administration that at the end, when I, come down, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth. I shall at least have one friend left, and that friend shall be inside of me. Finally, I believe that Lincoln's inspiration is a legacy that will never die, and I appreciate your attention. We do have about five minutes' time for questions, if any of you have any. Please. Uh, what was Lincoln's position while he was um, studying to be a lawyer and working on thinking about emancipation about the British experience in the West Indies, where they had paid or compensated emancipation of the slaves in Jamaica and other holdings that the British had as a model for what could have perhaps happened in the United States. Do you have any thoughts about that? I don't think Lincoln really thought about that. I don't think he really understood that. Uh, the whole idea of his initial approach on slavery really originated with the position of his role model, Henry Clay. his position on the three-fifths compromise? I don't think I've ever read anything about how he felt about that particular part of the Constitution. I don't think you've ever read about it, and I don't think I have or anyone else. Uh, you know, one of, one of my goals is to read all of Lincoln's collected works. Uh, I'm sure you know there are eight volumes. I've, pardon? Well, actually, I think, I think Lincoln did okay. have a position okay. on this. Okay. Um, Thank you. Lincoln, I'm going to learn. Lincoln pointed out in one of his addresses or letters that the word slavery was never used in the Constitution because the founders implicitly hoped that that peculiar institution would die out. 
That's the only thing that I'm aware of, though, okay. surrounding the three-fifths compromise. Thank you. I was just reading one of the articles the Constitution they were talking about that, the three-fifths. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have a question. Yes. Um, you, you brought the mind about Charleston, South Carolina, which is in debate. I was reading last night actually about Calhoun and his uh, opposition to Jackson, and Jackson to, to almost going into the South to shove it down the throat. Right. But in that continued, right? That was sort of right up to the Civil War. That was part of the situation, was it not? Oh, yeah. That, John C. Calhoun was the greatest advocate of all of states' rights. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and uh, they were very, very fearful if more, and, and the South literally controlled the Senate, okay? And if there were more free states, then uh, the North would also take over control of the Senate. And he was very, very concerned. Slavery was, and the whole attitude of the South was going to be severely threatened. So Jackson, though he himself was an apologist of slavery, he, he, uh, the idea of keeping union together superseded that, and he, he forced the issue with Calhoun. And Calhoun backed down because of that implied force, or sure. over yeah. force, I would yeah. say. Jackson, Jackson was not an advocate of emancipation of Correct. slaves, mm -hmm. not at all. Mm -hmm. But he was very, very strong on the union. And, and, and Jackson had a reputation and a persona that when he said, he was going to do something, you knew he was going to do it, you know. If it meant war, you, we were going to have war, you know, and uh, Calhoun and those uh, uh, people in South Carolina knew that, and so they obviously decided they didn't want to take him on. Thank you. Uh, if you could rank all the books that you've read about me, which would be your top three? Well, most of us start, you know, with because we, we can't spend our lives just reading Lincoln or, you know, you've got a lot of subjects to cover and a lot of things to read about. But you'd start with what's, a, what's the best single uh, volume biography. And, and right now, historians have concluded it's David Donald's book. And I, I mentioned that James McPherson, who's written the best single volume on the Civil War, The Battle Cry of Freedom, and says that Ron White's book is going to supersede it because he had access to new material. Um, but, you know, I, I like James McPherson a whole lot, but I'm a little bit wondering because Ron White was one of his students. <laughs> but, so that, that, would be, uh, that would be one. Um, Douglas. You like Team Arrivals. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Team Arrivals would be in that list. And then I, I guess I'm going to, it's such a hard question to have three. Uh, I, I think it's Douglas uh, Wilson's book, Lincoln Sword. Uh, uh, Doug Wilson, I'll, I'll talk about him in the next presentation I made, but he's won the Lincoln Prize two times in a row. That's a $50,000 award from Gettysburg <coughs> College. And he won it first for the book Honor's Voice, and then he won it again for Lincoln Sword. Uh, and either one of them, because I think about again writing something today that changes the interpretation profoundly. And and this first book on on Honor's Voice deals with the Ann Rutledge issue. And uh, James Garfield Randall, who wrote the best four-volume biography of Lincoln, who was who was the dean of scholars of Lincoln from the University of Illinois, said that Herndon's 
uh, oral history that he did of people who knew Lincoln about Ann Rutledge is just not accurate. And John Simon, who was my major professor at SIU and the, the greatest grant expert, started the, the, the revisionist uh, interpretation of that. Doug Wilson picked it up. And Doug Wilson has so convincingly contradicted James Garfield's conclusion to say, there, you know, we all know that there was an Ann Rutledge, but Lincoln and Ann Rutledge were r deeply in love and perhaps would have been married, and that when she died suddenly, Lincoln was terribly distraught. And so everybody today says, Randall is wrong, Doug Wilson is right with Honor's voice, and then this book, Lincoln's Sword, what he's really saying is the sword is more powerful, the pen is more powerful than the sword, and it's just a brilliant book. It's going to be, going to be a classic in history. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.